Hi, my name is Jordan Schneider, and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm here today with Peter Lawrenson, an assistant professor of economics at the University of San Francisco, specializing in the political economy of development and authoritarianism, with a particular focus on China. Peter, welcome to the show today. Thanks. Glad to be here. Sure. So before we、uh, jump into a few of your recent papers, if you could just walk us through your your China story, what first got you interested and in, and and kept you interested in the country? So I grew up in、uh, California in the San Francisco Bay Area,、uh, which has always had、uh, a lot of people from from all around Asia. So that's、um, you know a, a big chunk of who I grew up with: people from Vietnam, China, Korea, Japan.、Um, and when I got to college、uh, and had to do a foreign language、uh, requirement,、uh, I thought that would be a good time to、uh, branch out and learn something more about you know where、uh, at least one of the countries where all my friends had come from.、Um, And at the time,、uh, I was very committed to being an impractical intellectual, and so、uh, there were two choices: there was the language of the the booming Asian culture, where anyone practical who、um, wanted to make a lot of money、uh, would go, and there was the language of sort of a deep, rich、um, culture that you know wasn't really going anywhere economically, was but、uh, was more、uh, fascinating for a true intellectual who who was above such things. Uh, so that's why I chose Chinese because at the time,、um, in、uh, in the late '80s,、uh, China was you know not the big economic growth story. It was more the culturally deep story, and we were all worried about、um, worried about or excited about、uh, the economic opportunities in Japan.、Um, but I decided to go the other route.、Um, although, of course, the lesson of that is you never really know which、uh, which countries are going to be the economic success stories and which ones、uh, aren't, and those decisions just kind of stick with you. Um, anyway, so then uh, in nineteen ninety,、uh, in my sophomore year,、uh, before my sophomore year of college,、uh, I went on a foreign study tour to、uh, Beijing,、um, and basically、uh, it's been kind of a slippery slope since then. Just thinking if I spend a little bit more time studying this language and culture, and、uh, later this economy, then、uh, maybe I could come to grips with it. And、um, I've never really、uh, fully mastered it, but I keep working at it. Sure. So you、uh, coming to your first paper, you started studying Chinese right as Tiananmen, and the ripple effects were playing out. Did that at all play into、uh, you know your first engagements with China, being in Beijing in 1990?、Uh, yeah, I mean it was、uh, it was definitely easy to get on that foreign study program because it was not a high demand thing. I guess、uh, all the、um, students with sensible parents、uh, had been had been forbidden from participating, and, and you know there was、uh, a lot of、uh, sincere debate about whether. Um, you know, people should even be going to China or, or engaging with China at that point.、Um, you know, so soon、um, after 1989.、Um, but、uh, yeah, so that was that was a big part of it.、Um, partly, I went because I was a little bit uh, oblivious, um, and uh, but certainly that that you know transformative moment for、uh, China and for I think a lot of the world's view of China has has shaped a lot of the.、Uh, Um, research that I've been doing since then. So,、uh, coming to your、uh, the first paper we're going to be talking about today,、uh, designing contentious politics in post 1989 China, which sort of looks at the protests in China from a game theoretical approach. If you could talk about how, before we jump into the the theory, just、uh, the facts of how protests look like in China today. Okay, well, you know, there's a lot of different、um, you know varieties, and so so part of it. Is the challenge is to say what are the what are the common elements?、Um, so you know everything I say has its has its important exceptions, but 
um, the sort of uh, typical protest um, that seems to take place, you know, not not among the sort of intellectual or activist uh, elites, but um, among ordinary people um, for, um, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years now has, has almost always been um, by uh, by a small sort of narrow particular group, like the, the members of one village or the, the workers from one or two state-owned enterprises, um, or maybe the people living near a particular, uh, say, uh, polluting plant that's um, going to go in or that's polluting already or they're, they're worried is polluting, um, and not sort of larger larger groups as uh, we saw um you know, certainly through through a number of protests in the 80s that culminated in the 1989 movement, um, but also in earlier periods of uh, of Chinese history. Um, you know, so it's not a was they aren't kind of mass movements prote- um, protesting you know with large groups, um, and that's because their goals um, tend to be very narrow as well. So their goals are not you know let's change the system or let's talk about what's wrong with the system. Instead, their goals are generally you know. Uh, in the late uh, late '90s, often it w- in the countryside, it was often you know taxation levels that were too high. Um, more recently, often it's land expropriation uh, or environmental issues. And then the, in the cities, um, the late '90s story is a lot of that was around uh, the layoffs from the state-owned enterprises. Uh, and then um, you know as that ultimately got uh, resolved um, one way or another, uh, more recently it's been. Um, uh, there have been more worker protests, uh, for instance, at foreign-owned uh, enterprises or other um, private-oriented uh, enterprises um, more often in the South. Um, but in all these cases, they're asking for something for, you know, they're not asking for the right to form, say, a national union um, or a, a, new, a new labor movement. Um, instead, they're asking for, you know, better pay or uh, unpaid pensions um, and the language uh, that they frame their demands in is generally very sympathetic to um, to the party's uh, at least its professed goals. Um, you know, so they may they may choose to use more Marxist or Maoist language and talk about the workers being the vanguard of the proletariat and they should be taken care of, um, or they might use more uh, you know what you might think of as modern you know rights based or legalistic language. Um, and you know, refer specifically to uh, policies of the central government that have um, conferred upon them, uh, you know, greater rights as workers. Um, but either way, they're not saying that you know the system is bad. They just always complain about local implementation of the you know benevolent um, rules of uh, rules or principles laid down by by the higher levels. So that that's kind of the the, the key of it. So jumping into uh, the paper, could you? walk us a little through the idea of mechanism design and thinking about the uh, Communist Party as a mechanism designer and the way that they uh, respond to these protests. Sure. So so mechanism design um, is, you know, the paper itself uh, just refers to it, doesn't use it explicitly, but me- but it's a set of uh, tools from um, economic theory that, um, or a set of ways of thinking about behavior and how to structure the incentives that people face um, in order to induce a certain set of behaviors from them. So that's very abstract, but, um, you know, examples uh, include, you know, just simple things like employment contracts. You know, do you pay someone per unit that they produce or, you know, the amount of effort they put in? Um, but uh, it's also been used for much more uh, complicated settings, um, you know, the auctioning of 
um, telecommunications spectrum uh, in order to make sure that it goes to the, the party that values it the most, for instance, um, and, uh, and even for um, designing of, uh, of matching systems like uh, medical resident matching is also uh, now um, being designed in consultation with economists using these, these methodologies. Um, but the key thing in, in all of them is that there's uh, sort of a, a mechanism designer or a principle, and then there's uh, sort of the, the participants in this system, you know, the, the bidders in the auction or the employees or the uh, people looking for, um, for their medical match, the, the doctors, um, and they, uh, they have information that um, they can't sort of disclose um, they can't, can't credibly disclose or that they could, they could tell you whatever they want, but they would basically possibly all tell you the same thing. You know, for instance, I'm a hard worker and I did a great job. So, you know, pay me the most or I'm the best doctor. So give me the best job. Um, and you have to find, uh, a way to, uh, elicit from them, um, sort of an honest disclosure of, of this information. So, um, so in China, um, I take this sort of, uh, framework and think about it in the context of, you know, rather than thinking of protests as kind of this um, spasmodic just eruption of uh, pent-up feeling, um, which, you know, it has, I mean, certainly in any particular instance, it always has elements of that. You know, it's um, not sort of a perfectly rational decision like someone deciding where to apply to, to college. Um, but, um, but for purposes of the sort of mental exercise, I treat it as such, because I think that also when people protest... Um, especially in a country like China, where, you know, even um, even a fairly ignorant person has an idea that the state uh, could react pretty badly um, to to the wrong kind of protest, um, that they they do it with uh, to an extent with their eyes open, with an eye to, you know, what is likely to happen to me? Uh, what are the risks? And then what are the benefits? Um, and given that they do this, then the, the government itself can uh, bear that in mind uh, when it sets um, its policies, both formal and informal, um, about how, how it reacts to different kinds of protests and also then how it chooses to uh, publicize its, its policies or you know, its responses to uh, particular outbreaks that uh, become known either in a local area or increasingly with the Internet, they often become known uh, nationally. So however the government responds kind of sets a precedent. And the way that, I mean, one, one simple way that that matters is, you know, if you think about uh, one extreme view is you say, well, if it's a repressive government, you know, if they didn't like protest, then they could just crack down on the first one they see um, harshly. And then everyone else um, would, uh, except for the most, you know, passionate exceptions, uh, would probably choose to just stay at home and, and not... Um, not choose to challenge the state in that way in the future. Sure. So that that um, uh, brings us to uh, the first of your four puzzles, which is why the government doesn't fully suppress suppress these protests. So so what's their uh, what's their thinking behind this? Right. So so I can't claim to uh, directly know their thinking. I don't have um, a secret uh, line into the Politburo, and I don't think anyone does. Um, you know, we have some uh, evidence from documents that they circulate that are, um, you know, internal um, or mainly intended as, you know, guidelines for, you know, public security officers or uh, local officials in, in handling protests. 
and um, they generally uh, well. So as I was saying, they you know if they if they crack down on everything, then that would get everyone to be potentially everyone to be quiet. Um, but the risk then is you have sort of a, a, a dangerous silence um, where you know as problems emerge, people don't speak up. Um, and so, so at that extreme, you, you end up with kind of repressed concerns, which, you know, the fear is then problems don't get resolved, uh, you know, and in particular, the government doesn't learn information that it wants to learn about, you know, where are the, where is official corruption so bad that we really should deal with, with it? Um, where are, uh, social tensions particularly severe or, and also, you know, you know, which of our policies are, uh, either in specific instances or, uh, in general, not working out well. Um, if people can't stand up and communicate this, um, then, then the party might not learn it. And that means then, you know, you never know when it's going to happen, but when, uh, some kind of, uh, precipitating event occurs that could lead to a national, um, you know, a nationally destabilizing movement to arise, um, as has happened um, in many you know countries around the world. I mean, the, the Arab Spring being the most recent and, from the party's perspective, most terrifying example. Right? One um, you know one guy, uh, one uh, unhappy man, you know, sets himself on fire in protest, and suddenly the whole country and even countries around it um, see their whole populations rise up and, and governments fall. Um, and other ones just barely survive through very uh, even harsher repression. Um, so that's that's what you want to avoid is that that situation where uh, there's so much discontent, but you don't know where it is and you have no way to to identify it. Therefore, you can't respond to it. The other aspect of this uh, puzzle is that you can't, you know, why, why shouldn't you just say, you know, they have a petition system. They have uh, they could just allow people to speak. Right. Why is why is protest different? Um, the key is that protest is uh particularly informative, first of all, because you actually have to have enough people who care about something to get a group together, um, but also because, uh, exactly because it's not really legal, um, it's always dangerous. But that danger means it's informative. You know, everyone has a grievance in every country all the time. If you tell them, is there something they'd like you'd like the government to do for you, everyone has something they'd like to have done for them. Um, the question is, who as a regime that wants to stay in power, who are the ones who are dangerous enough that you really have to uh, listen to their voice and take them seriously? And and by protesting, um, knowing that you know it's possible that they'll, in the process, get beat up by uh, by government or or government sponsored thugs, or um, you know that that things will get out of hand and the police will have to use force or their leaders will be arrested. Uh, by doing that, these these groups show that they're very serious. Coming to the next puzzle, uh, you ask why protesters aren't more aggressive. I mean, in Beijing recently, we just had two things that may have gotten people on the streets in another country, the uh, kindergarten scandal and the, the moving of the low-end population. But the response has basically been entirely online with subtle Weibo posts and, you know, no mass uh, uh, mass movements, which is kind of uh, de rigueur in China. So um, what's going through these uh, protesters' heads in that, um, you know, on the one hand, they may be able to get more leverage if they if they speak out and get louder, but um, they seem to not be taking that uh, that tack. Right. Well, in those cases, um, from what I've seen, no one's uh, no one's gotten on the street. Um, and I think that's because they've gotten a pretty clear message um, from the government that, you know, uh, 
they may well understand what uh, people's concerns are, um, but they're not going to, especially in, you know, in Beijing, it's always the most sensitive. So they're not going to accept uh, public protest from people in Beijing about uh, these issues. The government's going to you know, decide what it wants to do uh, without their input uh, at all in terms of, of protest. Um, and partly, you know, it's it's pretty clear. It's not that the government is unaware of these issues. It's it's very much happening in Beijing. It's in the news. Everyone knows about it already. There's no need necessarily to protest to, to show that people care about it, um, nor does the government... Uh, well, so yeah, so there's there's not as much of a need to protest in a sense because it's not information that that is really hidden from the government in a serious way. They, they perfectly understand why people would be worried about, um, you know, these, these rumors about what happened at, at uh, some kindergartens or, you know, why people would be upset about being uh, essentially deported from um, part of their own country. Um, but they don't necessarily accept, especially the second concern, they don't really accept that as valid and, and, and citizens know that. Um, but what I refer to in the paper is the other thing, which is that, you know, once you start a protest, you know, if you look at the playbook of how to have a successful social movement, you know, say in, in any democratic country um, or, or in a lot of uh, authoritarian regimes, you know, the goal is to form a broad coalition, to find allies, to, you know, take your maybe complaint that you initially viewed as narrow and, and transform it into a, a general statement of principle that people around the country and around the world can identify with um, and, and recognize that they share. Um, who, because then, you know, the more allies you have, the stronger bargaining position you should have. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that is true in terms of giving yourself bargaining leverage. And so in a sort of one-off interaction, um, you know, the more bargaining leverage your partner, you know, the other party has, uh, the more you may have to give them. So the, the more that you might think, the government would would give them, you know, depending on, uh, you know, if they can mobilize, you know, multiple cities rising up about an issue. Um, or, you know, in the countryside, not just one village, but say get several counties um, or whole province uh, up in arms. But uh, everyone, that, that doesn't happen. Um, and, and I think that's a matter of choice. Um, people are conscious of what the rules are. And those rules are, you know, you can, you need to show that you're a threat, but don't show that you're too much of a threat. If you show that you're too much of a threat, then you actually, you know, cause more problems for us. And because this isn't just a one-off for the central government, you know, they don't just, it's not just a matter of how do we best appease this group. It's also that however we, whatever we do to appease this group sets a little bit of a precedent for the next group that has their own grievance. And so if everyone feels like they now have license to mobilize a large you know, uh, you know, national constituency behind their issue, um, then you'll see a lot of those grow up. And that might be more than the regime can handle or might um, give them so much leverage that uh, the regime is no longer willing to to um, to pay them off or find a way to, to uh, resolve their issue. Sure, that's certainly a dynamic you saw recently in the in the Middle East. Um, the central uh, one of the central uh, ideas that backs this uh, policy by the Chinese government is that the protests, you know, stabilize and that they're controlled forest fires that, um, you know, there are enough, uh, you know, helicopters and firemen in the sky to put out, um, as opposed to actually risking uh, the the chance of it really catching fire and um, burning out of control. So um, 
what do you make of of uh, of the tenability of this of this policy? Okay, so you're referring to yeah another sort of central uh, metaphor in in the piece. Um, you know, I, I say that you know rather than um, you know there's kind of two two ways of thinking about protest. One is you know there's a, a phrase that Mao liked you know a single spark can ignite a prairie fire, um, and so even and that's again what we've seen in in many countries. You know, a protest that might originally seem to be about mistreatment of just one group suddenly becomes a national uh, anti-government protest. Um, but then the other metaphor people often use these days in China when they see these protests is, oh, well, it's a it's a pressure valve. And, you know, the idea there is that, oh, it's, it's perfectly benign for the government because you let them protest and maybe you give them something and then they go away. Um, and the problem is that kind of both of these are true it, at the same time. Um, you know, people aren't just, uh, you know, valves that let off steam. You know, we, in a sense... You know, we notice what other people are doing. And so if, you know, if one pressure valve goes off, that doesn't make the pressure valve next to it more likely to go off. But um, with with protests, it, it does make it true. Um, and so that's where the where I mentioned this metaphor of controlled burn. So in, in forestry, um, you know, they used to try to put out all the fires. But then the problem is that, you know, the, the forest would grow so thick that then on, you know, one hot, dry summer, then everything would light up and then the whole forest would burn flat to the ground because the the fire would spread so far and so rapidly they couldn't be stopped. So the sort of modern technique where possible is to if a, allow a fire to burn. If it starts burning, you let it burn, you keep it away from, you know, the houses or, you know, major areas, but if it's not uh burning too aggressively, you let it go um because that's kind of a natural um, ecological process. And then if another fire happens later, it won't spread rapidly through that area that already had a fire. And so protests are similar. If the protest happens, you can take care of their problem. Um, that's good. But like a fire, the risk is if one protest happens and it sparks another and sparks another, then you might end up with a general uh, conflagration. So the question is, you know, uh, which which one are we more, you know, how, how easily are these fires spreading? Um, and I think it's it's really neck and neck. I think uh, it was uh, China was in a really uh, or the, the the party was in a really good position in the '90s and 2000s in the sort of pre-internet era um, because China is such a large country with um, you know relatively weak transportation links, relatively weak communication links. You know, if you had a rural protest happening in Sichuan, you know, people weren't going to hear about it in Shandong, and it wouldn't. Um, you know, so there there wouldn't be an issue, or even even an urban protest, um, you know, would take some time before, um, you know, people around the country would would hear about it. Uh, now that's potentially no longer true, um, and so uh, the risks of letting something burn a little bit um, may be more severe. Um, and I think that may, uh, you know, my my guess is one of the factors um, underlying kind of the change in policy under Xi Jinping um, to be a lot more controlling over everything is, is a recognition that um, some of the the laxity, which might have been actually beneficial um, in uh, in the Jiang and, and Hu eras, um, might be might actually pose a greater risk now than it than it did in those times. Um, so so that's, that's the concern. But at the same time, you don't want to end up in a situation where you get no feedback and uh, again don't don't learn about problems um, in time to solve them sure so then um, uh, according to you it's not just she being she 
um, with the you know more recent uh, crackdown on NGOs and and web conversations and what have you, but actually his response to um, technological change and uh, the ability of these protests to really catch on that has uh, shaped a lot of his um, his policies on policies on these sorts of issues. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think I mean there certainly you know is individual personality. Uh, you know, tendencies or trends, um, which I'll, I'll leave the psychologists and historians to, to puzzle out um, with better information. But I think there is uh, at least at least one factor in this is that um, is, is what you say, that, that this changes in technology um, make that strategy, uh, that ability to control uh, localized um, conflict or contention um, more limited than it used to be. And there, so that means they have to uh, keep a tighter, tighter lid on everything uh, from the start. Great. So, um, Peter, we'll, let's just spend the last 10 minutes and walk through um, another one of your recent papers called Racing to the Bottom or to the Top, Decentralization, Revenue Pressures, and Governance Reform in China, um, which tries to explain... Uh, tries to look at the decentralization of the past a few decades in China and understand um, why uh, there's variance in governance and how uh, different provinces respond to orders from on high. Um, so first, could you walk us through a little bit the history of uh, decentralization in the PRC? Um, yeah, um, that's, that's a pretty complicated one. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's always been a... Um, a uh, complex issue because you know there's there's actually been a tradition even under Mao you know we we often characterize it as a totalitarian era and certainly there are these very centralizing tendencies where you know he would he would whisper something to an aide and then everyone around the country would feel compelled to uh, do exactly that or whatever they perceived that to be um, but at the same time there was um, you know, more scope for uh, local experimentation, uh, which, which scholars working on that era have um, have identified, uh, which then, you know, was really took off and it was uh, core to um, what happened in, in China in the 80s and 90s, um, letting, letting local governments try out all sorts of different um, variations in, um, in, in how they uh, transitioned from the the straight socialist economy that that wasn't working out to something that made more use of markets, um, but you know was not just sort of a, a straight line to to a free market economy. Um, and so, uh, going with that, there's been you know central government policies about uh, fiscal decentralization. Um, you know how much revenue do you leave with localities versus um, claw back to the central government and then, you know, possibly grant to lower levels later. Um, and um, so so in the 80s and 90s, sort of too much money was going local. Um, eventually, there was a fiscal reform in the mid-90s that uh, clawed back a lot of that um, and sort of rationalized the system um, so that, that most money uh, now went to the central government and then could be reallocated to local governments. Um, <clears throat> and the uh, the but the, the situation that's left a lot of um, local governments in now is um, that they really have uh, a tremendous pressure to, to generate revenue um, just to to cover their local expenses. So there's a lot of um, uh, concern that you know the central government is mandating various policies that sound very good, but not actually allocating money 
um, to to local governments that that they need to to cover those expenditures. And so cities that are um, that are prospering um, for you know whatever reason, whether it's access to raw materials or um, from uh, foreign trade, um, those places uh, have plentiful revenues and and can spend them uh, freely on whatever whatever they want. Um, but the places that are struggling um, or having a hard time making ends meet. Sure. So you would um, expect in the in the base case that uh, you know cities with weak, weaker um, fiscal bases that have to depend more on the government would be more responsive to um, to government reforms. But that doesn't seem to be the case according to your research. Um, so could you look uh, describe a little bit the empirical approach you took to this problem and how you tried to gauge the um, the responsiveness levels of these different provinces? Sure. So um, the main measure we use is a set of measures of uh, environmental transparency that were put together uh, by the uh, some people at the Natural Resources Defense Council um, and their Chinese uh, partner um, uh, uh, organization called IPE. Um, and uh, the they measured for each city um, a couple. There were two different measures. Um, one of them was a pollution information transparency index, which is basically how readily did this city disclose uh, information about the pollution from specific factories. And this was, they they put this in place immediately after the central government uh, implemented a set of open government information regulations, which apply not only to pollution, but to a lot of areas. Um, But pollution was the, uh, the the environmental ministry was the, the first to um, put out regulations on this and, and has been an enthusiastic proponent of it uh, from the start. So that's why they uh, these NGOs took the opportunity to say, well, let's, let's rank people and let's sort of uh, encourage the ones who, who do well as, and, you know, maybe prod the ones that aren't doing so well. Um, so what we do is we, we're, we're not um, interested in actually whether the um, whether these transparency regulations, what their effect is. Other people have, have looked on that since, but our interest was in the tremendous variation in how sort of enthusiastically different cities um, acted to put them in place. Um, and uh, and there, there was a lot of variation. A lot of it had to do with, you know, how rich and developed um, cities were, you know, their per capita income. Um, you know, a rich city just maybe, uh, you know, they already have people who say know how to build a website and, uh, you know, on staff and they can just do it. Um, but uh, but there were also, um, you know, that, that only explained part of the variation. So we're sort of looking at, you know, what other factors were there. And um, something we found that was a, a big deal and actually mattered um, almost as much as GDP per capita. I mean, it's closely related to it, but it seemed to actually matter more uh, was the budgetary revenue that the, that the city had. Um, so, you know, so how, how not just how much money does that city make as an economy, um, but how much... Uh, does the city government control how much money does the city government control um, relative to the size of the population that they have to serve and when they tended to have more revenues they tended to um, put this in um, put this in place more rapidly and more effectively um, and when they had less revenues they put it in place more slowly so this you describe as creating a, uh, a race to the bottom as, as well as a race to the top dynamic. So first, maybe uh, walk through uh, what's happening in the uh, in the more effective, larger, richer cities. Yeah. So so then the the next step that we we took was to look at um, uh, 
how uh, not just, you know, um, sort of think, I think the easy way to think of it is to look at, you know, there's the, the rich cities compared to the poor cities, how other things affected this uh, choice of implementing the transparency regulations in those cities. And, and broadly speaking, what we found is that in the rich cities, um, the more polluted they were, um, the more transparent they, the more eagerly they embraced transparency. Um, whereas in the poor cities, the more polluted they were, the less eagerly they embraced transparency. And so, um, our thinking on that is, you know, the, the, so the race to the top is the, the, the richer cities. Um, you know, they, in those cities, it seems like they were, you know, viewed pollution as a problem to be solved. Um, and were willing to, uh, you know, embrace this transparency, which might actually hurt some of their um, larger industrial firms, you know, since they're some of the big polluters, um, in the spirit of sort of taking their economic development to the next level. And they could afford to do that because they had plentiful revenues. Um, whereas the poor cities, you know, they, you know, had very few sources of revenue, um, and as such, they were uh, very reluctant to to risk harming any of them um, by putting in place a policy that would force these places to um, some of these these polluting firms to disclose exactly what they were really putting in the air and the water. Um, so that was one that was one uh, uh, result we found. The other um, sort of similar relating to uh, foreign direct investment in the in the cities that had had bountiful revenues and sort of stable budgets. Um, they, uh, the more foreign direct investment they had, um, the more, uh, uh, the more compliant they were with this, uh, these, uh, new transparency regulations. So that, that suggested to us that they're sort of, um, maybe getting the, you know, the high end of foreign investment, the firms that are maybe the, the large multinationals that already maintain high pollution standards and are actually happy to have the whole city, you know, come on board with them to, uh, go along with standards that maybe because of their international reputation um, or their prominence, they would have to follow anyway. Um, and so, so that's sort of one end of things. But then again, at the low end, it looked more like the, um, the more FDI they had, then the, the less willing they were to put in place trans, uh, transparency. And that kind of fits with the other story, you know, the competing story about how uh, sort of the flows of, of global capital affect environmental regulation um and that's that competing story is that there's the story of a race to the bottom that places with you know the the softest regulations will uh, attract kind of dirty polluting firms those firms will migrate to wherever they can get the easiest um the easiest uh ride and the, the laxest um oversight and so it suggests that these places with um limited budget revenues were uh if they had any foreign direct investment it was um, more likely to be of of that kind that was looking for sort of a pollution haven um, as opposed to the high-end kind that um, could, was hoping to, to bring everyone else up to their level. Sure. Um, could you talk a little bit about the uh, incentives facing uh, party members in these in these uh, respective cities? Yeah, so um, you know these are these are definitely, decisions uh made by party members you know so for for um listeners who know china this will be familiar but um the party basically you know there's not the, the environmental ministry is nominally 
separate and you know reports you know in a in a line all the way up to the the ministry in Beijing. But in practice, your local environmental protection bureau is getting funding from uh, the local government. So that that's one channel of influence the local government has over it. Um, and then also the local party branch is going to be um, basically decides everyone's career path um, within um, the the party and the state. And so the local party branch is going to decide who gets appointed to your office and what your next promotion is afterwards, whether you're evaluated as having done a good job. And if you've messed up their development plan um, or you know put them in an even deeper budget hole by making life hard on uh, some influential firms, then that's that's not going to be good for your career. So so there's a lot of um, pressures they can exert on the the local environmental protection bureau, um, and so so that that basically means that you know the the local mayor and the party secretary are really the ones who will be the the key decision makers. And you know if they favor this you know embracing environmental transparency, it'll it'll happen a lot faster. And if they don't like it, it's going to happen uh, much more slowly. And um, and so their you know their incentives are they they uh, they themselves are hoping to get uh, to advance within the party and you know and uh, they're in sort of a cutthroat pr- uh, competition within um, you know this kind of meritocratic system right but it's a meritocracy that historically is uh, the primary measure of, of merit um, aside from you know uh, mouthing the appropriate uh, the latest party slogans the the main measure of merit has been to generate economic growth. Um, and an economic growth is sort of a slow moving thing that's hard to influence as every politician discovers to their, um, to their chagrin when they get in power. Um, but some things are easier to control, like how much revenue do you, um, do you gather? And are you the one who's always begging the center for a handout? Or are you the one who can cover your own costs and, uh, you know, have some money left over to, say, build a nice show project that will impress your, the higher-ups when they come visit you to see what you've been doing with your city. Um, and so that, that's why this revenue issue becomes so central for them. So if you were sitting on the Politburo and wanted to try to untangle this knot, uh, what, uh, what steps would you recommend that the, uh, the party take here? Well, I think the the it's a challenge in the sense that that every uh, I mean they face a challenge that that a lot of uh, you know corporations face of um, or or really any large organization right how do you how do you give people the right incentives again so that's actually so you know coming back to to my you know my own my own background my PhD is actually um, in economics um, from a business school and where uh, a lot of the people are specialized in organizational design and. Um, and this mechanism design, and so I, I come at it from that perspective, even when I'm um, just looking at um, uh, empirical data. And so, uh, I think what they they the problem they face is you know some things that are easier to me- if you measure certain things because they're easier to measure, then you'll tend to get more results, you know, in the things you measure. And so they really need to um, find a way to if they're serious about some of these softer things like improved environmental quality, um, they either need to lessen the incentives for um, economic growth, assuming they take that seriously, um, or uh, assuming they take the environment as seriously as they you know, now increasingly claim to. Um, they need to, to also give people more of a pass on growth and also be stricter about um, uh, you know, consequences for localities that uh, 
that are lax on regulation um, or that have, uh, you know, are, are poor performers in terms of environmental outcomes. So it's not really that much of, you know, it's not a magic formula, but uh, it is something yeah, that they need to take seriously um, and, and push a little bit harder on if they're, if they believe in it. Um, and given, you know, that, that a lot of the time the, the formal rules of what the, the laws say are very different from the actual practice of what people value in the party, um, it can take some time to change perceptions down at the lower levels, even if um, at the top they, they believe themselves to be sincere. Well, let's wish them the, uh, the best of luck. Um, so before we get to uh, recommendations, if you could just let everyone know where they could uh, uh, follow you and, and, and find more of your work. Uh, sure. So uh, I am on Twitter um, as at Peter Lawrenson. Um, so my last name is spelled L-O-R-E-N-T-Z-E-N. So it's just my uh, first and last name together with no spaces or dots or anything. Uh, Peter Lawrenson. And uh, my uh, website is also the same, www.peterlawrenson.com. And uh, I post all of, uh, all of my published research and, and working papers there. Great. So, Peter, if you could recommend a, a book or two that you've enjoyed recently uh, related to these topics or just on China in general, and maybe uh, a topic uh, that you don't think has been appropriately given a, a book-like treatment in English on, uh, on anything related to China. Um, well, so in terms of um, good books related to this topic, um, one that just came out that uh, I'm really looking forward to sitting down to read um, is uh, by Diana Fu from the University of Toronto. She has a book called Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China. So it's based on her uh, field work um, in China, talking with, um, particularly with labor organizers um, and others, uh, trying to you know, understand how they operate in the, the kind of environment that I described with this kind of uh, controlled, uh, contentious politics. Um, and... Uh, I've seen her present uh, pieces of the the work, and so you know the the key thing um, in a lot of cases is they they sort of have to be have to play a very careful game of sort of organizing without um, being organizers. So you know you can't again you can't form an independent union in China or or um, you know labor rights ag- advocacy group. Um, so instead, they kind of uh, just provide advice to workers that come in and um, suggest what they might do and, and kind of guide them um, informally uh, without, you know, form- formally making them part of an organization uh, and, you know, without without putting any kind of stamp of approval or, you know, letting it be known that they are behind that. So they sort of help, um, as I see it, I think that they're helping these, um, these people to play the game of protest as, um, you know, within the rules set by the party uh, without overstepping those bounds. But but by doing so, they do at least give them, uh, you know, more ability to um, make the claims uh, against local authorities or um, or employers that the the party is, is willing to let them make as long as they do it, you know, in the kind of right format. Well, the book that I want to read to... Uh, plug myself a little bit, I guess, is the, the book that I'm hoping to finally finish writing um, on uh, on this topic, um, uh, 
that will be the title will be controlled burn and it'll be talking about um, this dynamic with protests uh, and also looking at a very similar um, dynamic that that plays out in the context of uh, media and the the sort of uh, leeway that the party um, gives to investigative journalists and when it gives them more and when it reigns that back in um, that's uh, sort of been um, almost finished for a little bit too long and so I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it and uh, and getting it out there so that uh, that everyone else can read it awesome great well uh looking forward to checking that out peter uh, thank you so much for your time today this was a pleasure thank you very much it was great talking to you
No money, no fun. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code PREPARED22. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.